Hello and welcome to the History of Modern Greece. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George, and our theme music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is a podcast that covers the events from the fall of ancient Greece to the modern day. This is episode 39, the Abbasid Caliphate versus the Tang Dynasty. This is episode 26, the Chinese versus the Abbasids. For many years, the Abbasid Caliphate and the Chinese Tang Dynasty expanded their empire's borders and their control. Both powers had their eyes set on Central Asia, and after many years of conquest, the two empires finally met face to face. This story doesn't directly correlate with the history of modern Greece, but it is a continuation of our episode on the Abbasid Revolution, and it also sets the stage for a group of people who will become very important in Season 2. And although this episode focuses on the events in modern-day Kazakhstan, we have to begin with the events in China. In the year 598, a boy was born in Wugan County, in the heart of China. He was born into the family of Li Yuan. This dynasty was of mixed-race background, consisting of Chinese and Turkic ancestry, and the boy's name was Li Ximen. The father of this four-year-old boy was told a prophecy concerning his son. The prophecy said the boy would be both phoenix and dragon, and would bring the empire into great prosperity. His father was encouraged by this prophecy and put his son in the most rigorous military training and philosophy schools to prepare him for leadership. In 613, a high official was so impressed with the progress of this young man that he offered his own niece's hand in marriage. The official obviously saw potential in this young man and wanted to get in at the ground level. In 615, the eastern Turkic Khanate descended on the Chinese valley and besieged Wagon. Li Ximan served with distinction in a campaign against the evading Turkic tribes, and we don't know for sure if he led these campaigns or if he served well underneath other commanders, but we do know for sure that he was there and that he served very well. And because of his leadership, and recognition in the military campaign against the Turks, Li Ximan's father held him in higher esteem than all of his other brothers. In 616, Li Ximan's father took him to the capital city. The empire was united under the current dynasty for the first time in over 400 years, but the peace was quickly unraveling. The current dynasty could not rule over all the people and kingdoms effectively, and fragments of the empire started to break away. During this turmoil, Li Ximan's father was pressured by other nobles and lords to rebel against the emperor. And Li Yuan, Li Ximan's father, was hesitant at first. He didn't want to rebel against the emperor, but he was convinced by his son that they didn't really have a choice. You see, if they didn't rebel, and all these other people did, and they won, they would be known as the ones who sided with the guy who lost. They, they had to join in. 
And after listening to his son, Li Yuan gathered his forces and prepared to march on the imperial city. In 618, Li Yuan successfully marched on the imperial city and seized the throne, making himself the emperor of China. And in this campaign, Li Ximen led several victorious battles against the rival Chinese warlords, making himself very popular among the new dynasty, and also making his older brother jealous of all the military glory he was winning for himself. With this rebellion, the Tang dynasty was founded, and it wasted no time in spreading outward, assimilating the smaller kingdoms around it. And it's fun to note that while this is all going down in China, the Byzantines and the Sassanids were engaged in the Great War that would eventually see themselves destroyed. In 626, the rivalry between the sons of Li Yuan came to a boiling point. Both brothers had grown paranoid of being assassinated by the other. And it started when the third son of Li Yuan, Li Yuanji, was given control of the northern army to defend against the invading Turkic tribes. Li Ximin wasn't happy about handing the army to his younger brother, especially when that army had originally been commanded by himself. And Li Ximin went straight to his father and informed the emperor that his two brothers were having an affair with the emperor's concubines, and they were bringing great shame upon the family. So the two brothers were called from the frontier provinces back to the emperor's court to answer these outrageous charges. And while they were traveling south to meet their father, Li Ximin ambushed his brothers and killed them in close combat, and one of them he killed with his own sword. Li Ximin marched to his father's court as the sole surviving son, forcing his father to crown him as the prince and heir to the empire. Li Ximin then dedicated himself to serving as a competent and subservient prince to his father, proving himself ready for the office when his father passed. And by the end of the year, Li Ximin was crowned emperor and given the new name, Taizong. And he knew the first thing he was going to have to do was rearrange the bureaucracy of the empire. There were far too many lords and nobles for anything to get done. He set forth regime changes that would favor quality men rather than numerous men, shrinking the bureaucracy of the empire to something much more manageable. He also created a true meritocracy where an individual of competence would climb the ladder instead of the son of some lord who had no skills at all. Taizong's regime changes were quite enlightened and included changes forbidding the cruel punishment of amputating feet. Now the perpetrator was just banished from the city. Taizong also changed the rule so a criminal could only be executed after a case was brought to the highest court and found guilty. This prevented hasty executions. In 627, the Tang Dynasty bumped up against the Eastern Turkish Khanate. With the new Khan, the Turks gathered a force of 100,000 cavalry and charged into Chinese territory. The unstoppable riders made it through the mountains and into the Chinese lowlands, where they came within 10 miles of the imperial capital. It's likely they were paid enormous amounts of gold and tribute to leave the imperial lands and return home. 
Unrest rapidly spread throughout the Turkish tribes as different families violently competed for control over the entire tribe. The current Khan and his son feuded for control over the horde, and Taizong, the Chinese emperor, saw an opportunity and offered the son of the Turkish Khan sanctuary in the empire. Using his influence and power to sow a divide among the Turks, the Chinese emperor managed to convince the Turkic prince living with him to lead an army against his father. And he did. The Turkic prince led an army of Chinese soldiers against his father and the Turkic army and defeated them in battle. The defeat of the Khan brought all of the chieftains from the Turkic tribes to the capital of the Tang dynasty, where they nominated Taizong to the position of Khan, Khan of all the eastern Turks. Taizong absorbed the eastern Turkish lands into his empire, bringing Chinese influence into Central Asia through the steppe north of the Himalayas. Thousands of Turkish noblemen were moved into China, and the Turkic warriors were spread all through the frontiers of the new empire, successfully integrating the Turkish people into the Chinese empire. In 637, Taizong released his new legal code within the empire. This legal code took 10 years to draft and drastically reduced the amount of crimes punishable by death. Taizong also instituted public schools to educate his new regime. His entire work was towards creating a new and unified Chinese empire. He also knew that his new empire had a fragile economy, as it was just setting its roots. So his foreign affairs policy was to keep the peace with his neighbors through marriage alliances and any other measure that prevented military action. Only once the empire's economy was solidified was a time for imperial expansion. In 640, Taizan focused his attention on the western Turkic tribes and their Silk Road trading cities situated along the northern passages. The Chinese emperor moved his armies west, through the mountains and valleys, and attacked the Tibetan cities and western Turkic tribes. He was determined to expand his empire further west, and eventually the emperor pacified the Tibetan rebellions with a marriage alliance. The Chinese empire was now reaching a size bigger than it had ever been before. And at this point in our narrative, the Arab Caliphate was exploding out of the deserts and was conquering all of the Persian Empire and most of the Roman Empire, bringing the Arab conquerors right into contact with the Western Turkic tribes. In 645, Taizan focused his attention on the Korean Peninsula. The campaign against Korea played out just like many other campaigns in military history. The larger Chinese army successfully invaded the Korean Peninsula and was quite successful in seizing land and cities. But then winter set in and the Chinese were bogged down with the cold, and the soldiers were now tired and suffering from dysentery. Suddenly the Korean resistance regrouped and counterattacked the Chinese imperial forces, killing thousands and pushing the army back up and out of the Korean peninsula. Taizong tried again several times, but it always turned out the same way. In 647, the Korean king asked for an alliance with one of the western Turkic tribes. This alliance had been requested before, and was always refused by the Turks. But when the Khan died and a young Turkish prince took control, he accepted the alliance 
with the Koreans and declared war on Taizong. The Chinese military was diverted away from the Korean peninsula and marched all the way across China to the frontiers of the steppe in modern-day Kyrgyzstan, where they fought against the western Turkish tribes. The war was quick, and by the end of the year, China had absorbed the western Turks and the steppe lands into the Chinese empire. Unfortunately for Taizong, he contracted a disease while on the peninsula of Korea and was suffering day and night from extreme weakness, possibly malaria or other similar diseases. In a desperate attempt to cure himself, Taizong called in a magician from India, and the magician told Taizong that he was terminal and would soon die. Stricken by this news, the emperor focused on his son, hoping to groom him to take over the empire when he died. In 649, the great emperor Taizong passed away, leaving the empire to his son. His reign was one of the greatest moments of Chinese history and was a high mark on the Tang dynasty as well. The Chinese empire occupied land from modern-day Vietnam up to modern-day Mongolia and west to modern Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. To listen to the greatness of Taizong, we should listen to one of his more famous quotes. Here we go. One can trim one's apparel through the mirror of bronze. One could learn one's mistakes through the mirror of people. One could understand the rise and fall of empires through the mirror of history. In 657, the Tang Dynasty conquered the last of the Western Turkish Khanate, bringing the Chinese Empire right into the heart of the Asian steppe just north of the Himalayas. Despite having hostile engagements with the Tibetan kingdom, they mostly left the mountainous kingdom on its own, circling completely around the north. The Tang Dynasty had quickly become the largest Chinese state since the Han Dynasty and now had vast influence on Central Asia and the valuable silk trade routes. The Umayyad Caliphate was now the fastest growing empire in the West, and they were now fighting Turkic tribes on the farthest frontier, were themselves fighting the largest growing empire in the East. These Turks pinned between the two largest empires, and it was only a matter of time before they fell and the two new superpowers came head to head. The first skirmishes fought between the Chinese and the Arabs were always won by the Chinese, but these weren't major victories so much as they were just repelling Arab incursions into Chinese-held territory. We know that the first fights happened in the Fergana Valley, modern-day Kazakhstan. In 744, the Umayyads suffered several revolts. All of them failed, but for the next three years, the Caliphate was engulfed in a major civil war. This took most of their attention away from the frontier, giving the Romans and the Chinese time to consolidate. In 747, the Chinese spies were aware of the internal strife inside the Arab Caliphate, and they used it as an opportunity to subdue Central Asia. They invaded the kingdom of Gilgit on the edge of the Tibetan Empire. It was a swift victory as Chinese infantry and their siege engines crushed the Gilgit kingdom and all of its surrounding vassal states, forcing them to concede to the Tang dynasty. 
In 750, As-Safar led a rebellion against the Umayyads and won. The Umayyad dynasty was failing, and the Abbasid dynasty was taking off. Meanwhile, back in the Fergana Valley, the two buffer kingdoms between the Caliphate and the Chinese Empire, Fergana and Tashkent, started fighting with each other. Now picture a small valley to the north of Afghanistan that connects the Persian Plateau to the Eurasian Steppe. This valley is right in the middle of some of the driest and tallest mountains on the planet, and they act as a physical barrier between Central and Eastern Asia. It is also along the route of the Silk Road, so the kingdoms in this very narrow valley are in a very important and wealthy trading route. These two kingdoms, Tashkent on the Persian side and Fergana on the Tibetan side, were close neighbors. But they also competed for control over very limited resources in the valley, as well as control over the Silk Road. When they started feuding with each other, the Fergana called upon the Chinese Tang Dynasty for help. And with a little resistance, the Chinese marched into the valley and captured Tashkent. Now what could have been a small local dispute was now an international proxy war between empires east and west. With the Chinese backing for Ghana, Tashkent had no choice but to invite the Arabs into their land. The Chinese general and his army had already begun to retreat back into the Eurasian steppe to reunite with their greater military force. But what they didn't know was that an Arab army was moving in behind them. And they finally caught up to the Chinese in the Valley of Talas. Ziad bin Sali met Gao Zinji on the battlefield in what would be known as the Battle of Talas. This is located in what is now the borderland of Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. Fortunately, we have sources from both the Chinese and the Arabs about the battle. However, their information contradicts each other. Modern scholars estimate that because this was on the frontier of two great empires and was not a planned campaign, it is logical to assume there were between 30 and 50,000 troops on each side. Ziad bin Sali's army consisted of mostly Arab soldiers, but there were many Tibetans and Turkish warriors among the ranks. They were split 50-50 between infantry and cavalry. Gao Zinji's army was almost completely Chinese, but had forces from Fergana among them. The army was completely made up of infantry fighters. Because the sources of this battle differ so much, it has to be told in both perspectives. What we do know is that the battle was a decisive victory for the Abbasids, and that it lasted at least four days. We also know that the Talus Valley was a high mountainous valley, dry and barren. According to the first source, the battle starred with the Arab archers in the front of the line, spearmen right behind the archers, and both flanks protected by the cavalry. Ziad and his generals stayed in the rear. Gao Zinji similarly had his crossbowmen and archers in the front line, with his spearmen in the second row. He covered his two flanks with Turkish horsemen, who were the only cavalry in the army. The first three days saw the Chinese army advance on the Arabs and slowly chip away at the Arab archers, as the Chinese were using slightly better technology. Eventually the archers were forced to retreat behind their spearmen, 
forcing the Chinese to do the same and prepare for a charge. The Chinese had superior armor, and their charge crushed the Arab spearmen as well as the ranks of archers hiding behind them. Ziad sent cavalry up to the front line to alleviate pressure on the center ranks. This cavalry charge pushed the Turkish horsemen back, forcing the reserves onto the battlefield to protect the two flanks. This sequence of events happened three days in a row, and so far the Chinese held victory over the Arabs. However, on the fourth day of battle, the Turks betrayed their Chinese allies and attacked the Chinese infantry line from the sides, cutting through them mercilessly. At the same time, the Arab army made a frontal charge and wiped out the entire Chinese army. Gao Zinji was forced to retreat, losing almost 30,000 men on the battlefield. The Arabs themselves lost almost 20,000 men. According to the second source, the two armies faced each other in battle for four straight days without launching a single charge against the other. The two armies remained in formation while across the Talus River, a third army of Turks observed the two great armies. And instead of engaging, the Turks just watched. And on the morning of the fifth day, the Turks crossed the river and attacked the Chinese army from the flank. And while the Chinese had to divert their ranks to deal with the new threat on their left flank, the Arab army led a full frontal charge on the disordered Chinese infantry. The result ended with the Chinese general fleeing the battlefield and the Arabs swooping in for a great victory. Only a few thousand of the troops close to Gao were able to escape. The rest of the men were slaughtered on the battlefield or captured and sold into slavery. Now those are the two versions of the Arab and Chinese battle at Talas in 751 CE. But it didn't end there. Emperor Tain sent reinforcements to the area to curb the expansion of the Abbasid Caliphate. And in 755, uprisings in the heart of the Chinese Empire forced Tain to recall his troops on the Arab frontier. The Chinese were no longer able to hold influence over the region as their efforts were now focused inside. Likewise, the Abbasids were having their own internal strife, and their outward expansion came to an end, at least in this region. So now the only real strength left in the region was that of the Turks, who had been used in this proxy war by both the Chinese and the Arabs. The Turks quickly took control of the region, and with their exposure to the Arab Caliphate, they started to convert away from Buddhism and started to convert to Islam. See, Buddhism was the dominant religion from India all the way to China, and they were connected by land, and that is up until the Turks started to convert to Islam. And ever since they did, the two regions of Buddhism split and evolved differently. Now, not only did the Turks convert to Islam, but they converted to a Sunni sect of Islam. And this conversion was triggered by a small proxy war between the Arabs and the Chinese, and would normally have nothing to do with the development of modern Greek history. 
but these Turkish tribes were about to move out of the Talas Valley, and once they started moving, there was no stopping them. And another fun fact, that Arab warriors captured several Chinese prisoners during this battle, and these Chinese prisoners knew the secret of making modern paper out of pulp. Now this intrigued the Arabs so much that they traded their freedom for the knowledge of how to produce this pulp paper. Up until now, everything had to be written on parchment or papyrus. And paper was much cheaper and easier to make, and led to the expansion of books. Now this secret made it through the Arab Caliphate and eventually came through traders to Western Europe, where the invention of paper held fuel for the European Renaissance. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the history of modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.